Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid. If you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. You're trying to make a movie and not a film? We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. We should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. 1999 retrospectating. Did I do it the wrong way? Retrospectating 1999. That's how you say it. I have a I have a little bit of a penchant for the uh, portmanteau. Yeah, so, yeah, you do. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that'll be a bit of a tongue twister for the next uh, nine months or so. But at this point, I think we should commit to it. 1999, the retrospectation. There we go. This week we're doing the Matrix. Came out March 31st, 1999, and, uh, you know, th- this might be a common theme with a lot of these movies, but holy shit, we were the perfect age and demographic for The Matrix in 1999, were we not, Matt? Yeah, this one's particularly interesting, because uh, as with our last film, this was a rated R movie that came out when we were technically too young to see it in theaters. Now, we can get into all this Columbine blowback stuff here organically in the conversation, but I do think it's important to point out that up until Columbine, through most of our childhood, I would say, the Mm -hmm. whole legally, you know, the fact that it was illegal for somebody under 18, or I'm sorry, under 17 to get into a radar movie was not terribly enforced, right? Did you have difficulty getting, I mean, I did a lot of shoulder tapping as a kid for sure, but with few exceptions, it wasn't terribly difficult to get into a rated R movie as a 14-year-old in my experience. After Columbine, things got a lot more difficult. Luckily, we turned 17 a few months after Columbine, and I actually started working in a movie theater a few months after Columbine, and then getting into a rated R movie was no problem either. But what do you think about the fact that this film was rated R and still turned out to be not only a massive hit, but became a huge hit with kids who were clearly too young to get into it legally. Yeah, it, it's weird. I mean, this this movie, along with some video games at the time, obviously there was some backlash. You know, upon rewatch, it's, it's interesting how uh, unbloody the film is, you know? Okay. Um, it does feel kind of like a shoot 'em up video game because, the, you know, they are literal, you know, computer characters right these are the non-playing characters who are in the matrix so you're not supposed to feel bad uh mowing them down although they are real people in the matrix and so they sort of they die if they die in the matrix they die in real life anyway i never was uh, blocked from getting into an r-rated movie in, in my life like anytime i wanted to get in one i i did i suppose part of that's because we grew up in a place where there are multiplexes and you can just you know, buy a ticket for a different show sometimes. I remember the, the most strict actually was another movie I think we're going to talk about at some point, which is South Park Bigger and Longer and Uncut. Yes. I remember there being a big push to uh, make sure kids were, were ID'd at the time and, and you know it's part of what um, was the appeal for The Matrix is that people thought it was a cartoon so it was four kids and kids were going to want to see it and The Matrix just got a big word of mouth buzz going about it and clearly was being uh it, it was it was going to be catnip for kids no matter what just given given the subject matter and, and given the the type of action that was going on yeah it, it became this crazy crossover event where like people were actually going to see it like with their families yeah yeah, yeah. and it was definitely violent but like you said surprisingly bloodless Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly no sex or nudity, which is are things that Americans tend to bristle at much more than violence when it comes to the R-rated content. None of that, yeah. And, uh, you know, some scattered profanity, I think, but nothing, nothing too crazy. So, yeah, I mean, 
I guess it's not that much of a surprise that this went on to become one of the highest grossing R-rated films of all time, and I think held records for many, many years. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the, the year prior actually had two R-rated movies that had a higher box office gross. One was Saving Private Ryan, the other was uh, Air Force One, okay. which I was surprised to remember was rated R. <laughs> yes, both of which I saw in the theater with my dad, I think. And, but then you think about it, Saving Private Ryan, while it was the year before, was only a couple months before... And, you know, there was such a push to be like, you know, it doesn't matter that it's rated R. Kids should see this because, you know, it's quote-unquote important, right? Right, right, right. So I wonder if there's any sort of aftermath of that where there's sort of a shrug of shoulders when it came to letting kids see this movie. Obviously, it was pre any sort of Columbine or or school shooting backlash. We can get into all that stuff after we talk about the film itself because I don't think you can talk about this movie without talking about Columbine and the red pill and some alt-right things. You don't need to get too far in the weeds, but we can bring up that stuff when we talk about the film's legacy. 99 is so interesting because you have The Matrix, which becomes this phenomenon, this runaway hit, this surprise sort of like R-rated thing, and then you end up with, as you said, uh, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, and then you end up with American Pie as well. South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, and American Pie, hopefully we'll talk about both. But in between those two movies, you get Disney's Tarzan, which <laughs> becomes this huge hit. And there is this, um, there is a conspiracy theory that the numbers on Tarzan, which is a pretty unremarkable film, I'd be surprised if we covered it. We will not be covering it. We will not be covering it. But we can't not bring it up because one theory is that the numbers on South Park and American Pie, both of which went on to become perfectly respectable hits, but there is a theory that Tarzan was as big of a hit as it was because there were so many people buying a ticket to that and walking into <laughs> American Pie and South Park, respectively, right? I have not heard that theory, but I do love that theory. I, wor- I was working at the Regal, uh, well, not Meridian 16, it was the Regal Galleria in Bellevue in the summer of 1999 as an usher, and I definitely saw my fair share of 13-year-old kids who I would rip their Tarzan ticket, and then I would literally turn around and watch them walk into <laughs> not Tarzan. And uh, I'm sure it was part of my job to stop them from doing so, but far be it for me as a 16-year-old to be stopping a 14-year-old kid from going to see a movie that I would have recommended anyway. But The Matrix, yes, The Matrix I saw opening weekend, uh, March 31st, 1999 at the uh Factoria, uh, I guess it would be the Cineplex Odeon Factoria in Bellevue. How about yourself? I did see it opening weekend. I, I can't remember exactly which theater it was. I'm, I'm going to assume it was uh, Meridian 16, just right downtown Seattle. Sure. Yeah, I, I remember being super stoked for this. Obviously, the reviews and the buzz was uh, enormous. I think I had mentioned to you, I forget if it was on the pod or off the pod, that I, I remember the Super Bowl commercial with, oh yes, uh, of course. W- w- in the you know being interrogated in the in, in the mouth, uh, the the on a string cheese mouth, whatever you want to call it, that happens <laughs> to Keanu Reeves. Yeah, sure. Uh, and just and and going from there, being like, holy shit, what is this movie? Well, you're uh, you're forgetting the most important part of the advertising campaign for this movie, and I'm assuming it was involved in that Super Bowl commercial as well. Which is what the Enigma. Uh, oh. the, the music by Enigma, right? Like, was there anything that said late 90s more than scoring a trailer with Enigma? <laughs> exactly. And then the whatisthematrix.com. Of I course. that too. Great tagline. Um, I couldn't find the Super Bowl commercial, though. I couldn't find what I what I remember so vividly. I don't know if it, maybe it wasn't the Super Bowl. Maybe it was uh, earlier in the NFL playoffs. But uh, there's no there's no sign of it anywhere. So that could be just a, a misremembrance by me. But uh, I, I remember... I hadn't heard about it for for that long beforehand, and it hadn't gotten even a ton of buzz on like the Dark Horizons and the cool news sites until <laughs> Dark Horizons. Know, wow, yeah, that takes you yeah. back to the nineties. <laughs> oh yeah, until maybe a month before, but there was just crazy groundswell, um, and you have to give credit to uh, to the ad campaign, I suppose. But I think once kids started seeing those visuals and uh, you know the wire foo and the bullet time stuff that we hadn't ever really seen before, that's when it started happening. Do you remember anything specific about the movie that that got you excited, or was it just the the whole package? Uh, well, like I said, Enigma. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, honestly, like this this was pretty unprecedented. Let's let's set the table a little bit here. So we got the Wachowski siblings uh, at the time were credited as the Wachowski brothers who are coming off of Bound, right? 
Yes. So Bound was 1996, I believe, three years earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, I doubt very much that I had seen it at that point since have, obviously, and it has since become uh, my favorite Wachowski film, actually. Wow. Uh, I still think it's kind of their masterpiece, which I know is a little bit of blasphemy to some people. But um, so three years earlier, they make this movie Bound, which is kind of like structured to be a calling card for them, which is exactly how it worked. They were coming off of, I think they were comic book writers, and then they were spec screenwriters, and they wrote the script for that film. Uh, Assassins, actually shot in Seattle yeah, I, with I, um, I, Sylvester Stallone and Antonio Banderas and Julianne Moore. I did read that they sold the script for Assassins and the, whoever was the head of Fox at the time liked it and, and signed them to a three-picture deal. And at yes. that time, it was going to be Assassins, Bound, and Matrix. I think they had all those sort of lined up, ready to go. And, and Bound, like I said, like, like you said, was sort of a calling card. Can these guys do this sort of uh, show me type thing? Are you a Bound fan? Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it in years, but I remember I, I hadn't seen it pre-Matrix. I watched it after. Definitely a different kind of thing, but... Uh, it really holds up. Yeah, it holds up. It's a really good movie. It really holds up, and it's especially fascinating to watch it now in the context yes. of the fact that both of these uh, filmmakers have now transitioned to being women. Gina Gershon's best work... It's Jennifer Tilly's best work, and I think it's actually Joe Pantaleano's best work. Now, that's Ooh. I know Ooh. saying a lot considering the fact that he's one of the probably one of the greatest character actors of all time. But it's pretty rare that he gets. I mean, he's kind of the de facto lead of the. I mean, I guess is a three hander really, but he is exceptional in that movie. So funny, and the movie's so stylized and sexy and inventive, and it's just very smart in the way that it utilizes this very you know, intimate, low-budget setting, mm-hmm. um, and yet still manages to say very big things about feminism and makes commentary about, you know, noir itself. And I don't know, it's just, it's like the perfect calling card debut feature. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's not that crazy, considering the environment of mm-hmm. the 90s in terms of studio filmmaking, that you could piggyback off of something like that onto something enormous like The Matrix. Like, I don't think you could do that nowadays. Although, I guess nowadays, you you know, you can piggyback off of Safety Not Guaranteed onto a Jurassic Park movie. It, those things happen. But but that's piggybacking onto an established franchise. Yeah, the smaller debut indie movies are sort of where the big boys are. are it's the farm system, really. I mean, that's what Marvel's done. Like you said, it's what, what uh, Colin Trevorrow did. Um, it's kind of the yeah. only way to do it because... You know, if the studio is giving you money for anything now, it's going to be a big tentpole thing. So we're, you can't start with that, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm what I'm pointing out in terms of the difference is that nowadays you do something small as a calling card, and then you get onto an established franchise. You know, you go on to you know you get to make your Marvel movie, your Jurassic you don't Park make movie. Your own, yeah. You don't start a, your own franchise, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially something as cerebral and and uh, sort of experimental as something like The Matrix. So in that regard, it's a little bit unprecedented. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, but uh, yeah, they got Fox on board, and they got—or I'm sorry, Warner Brothers rather. They did a Warner Brothers movie. Oh, it is okay. Uh, I, th- I thought it was. F- uh, keep talking. I'll look it up. Warner Brothers, you're right. Warner Brothers. Picture. I'm just picturing the Village Roadshow yeah. sign. You know, the green on the Warner Brothers. Yeah. Uh, they get these guys on board. They get Joel Silver on board, who of course is a you know legendary producer to kind of sire this project and they go down to Australia and they do this thing. Now you also need to look at the cast that they assembled, right? So Keanu is coming off of a very long cold streak. Yes. And I think Keanu's career has been defined by his ability to go on these cold streaks, be completely written off by his by the entire industry and his peers, and then to rise from the ashes like the proverbial phoenix, right? He's done this what, three times at least in a very in a big bad way? Basically, Speed was in nineteen ninety four, and then this is between Speed and Matrix. Johnny Mnemonic, A Walk in the Clouds, Chain Reaction. Feeling Minnesota, The Last Time I Committed Suicide, and The Devil's Advocate. Yikes. Yeah, not great. But, I mean, you could also say the same thing about uh, what was happening between Point Break and Speed and what was happening between The Matrix and John Wick, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so I think he's he's done that. He's clearly positioned himself as somebody who you can't count out. He probably makes too many movies, and he's made a lot of bad decisions, but he's also continue to find these kinds of projects that he could hitch his wagon to and honestly the kinds of roles that were kind of were sort of tailor-made for him like I can't imagine anybody besides Keanu Reeves as Johnny Utah I can't imagine anybody besides him as Jack Traven as Neo and now as John Wick I mean he is 
he is incredible at sort of becoming iconic. I've kind of changed my view on guys like him or Sam Jackson or Nick Cage or whatever, where it's like, it's not that they've made bad choices, it's that the choice, they don't have the choices, the good choices in front of them if they like to work. Like in these, you know, Nick Cage might have to work. He's got a nut. Yeah. But Keanu Reeves clearly just likes to work and, you know, you're not going to get the John Wicks and the Matrixes every, every time you read a script. So it's either don't do as many movies or you're going to have some duds in between, right? That's the, those are your only options. Fair. And he's such a specific screen presence that I guess it would make sense that he would have to break some eggs before he would be able to make that perfect character omelet. Absolutely. Keanu Reeves is just a guy I adore. I'm super invested in his career and in him personally. I just... I find him to be so fascinating. I find his trajectory so interesting. By all accounts, is just a friggin' mensch. You know, he's a widower, I believe. Uh, his uh, his girlfriend. I don't think they were married, but they were engaged or something. So yes, I believe she passed away when he was making Speed. I want to say right. Was it that early or was it The Matrix? It was a car was accident, a and he, I don't think he's dated since. He's a interesting sort of uh, melancholy fellow, but all yeah, obviously right. He, you know, we won't say when we're filming this, but uh, uh, recording this, but he went viral today even oh really yeah his plane got uh uh, stuck in bakersfield and he had to get to la with a group of people and he organized uh, a bus trip and paid for it all with a group of like six other people and they stopped at carl's jr on the way and there's like this whole (laughs) instagram story documenting the whole thing him just hanging out and giving people fun facts about bakersfield to the (laughs) people like yeah just like the nicest guy ever by all accounts yeah he's he's famous for you know buying a crew of 300 you know paying for everybody's starbucks run or whatever you know like when certain films have gone overtime and the production company didn't didn't compensate people he would pay overtime out of his own pocket like contributed millions of dollars to various charities like it just seems like he's a just a really good guy mm-hmm. uh, nobody ever says a bad thing about working with him and um yeah he's created a really interesting niche for himself but at the time there was a lot of head scratching when he was given this. I mean, there was just a lot of head scratching about this movie in general, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like the synopsis is crazy, the concept is crazy, the trailers were crazy, the idea of Keanu in this role was crazy, and even honestly, Lawrence Fishburne, mm-hmm. uh, who was certainly a very well-known quantity, but I wouldn't say a huge movie star. Carrie Ann Moss was a nobody; she was a model, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely nobody. Her career was going nowhere, and it's you know going back to like. The Wachowskis getting away with a lot in their, in their second movie going from something like Bound to something like this. It's crazy that they're get, able to get away with like required philosophical texts for all actors auditioning and, and being <laughs> cast in this movie. Yeah. As, as cool as the stunt work is, everyone, you know, just reading through Wikipedia today, everyone got injured. Keanu Reeves sure. had had neck surgery. Like, uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne fucked up his hips. Like, uh, Carrie Ann Moss had a leg injury that stopped her from being able to shoot some of the uh, skyscraper scenes or whatever. Yeah, they're clearly, I don't know, overstepping their bounds in a lot of ways, but uh, fuck, it all worked out. It could have gone to shit, but it all worked out. You know, obviously pushing this whole bullet time concept, which if it didn't work, could have potentially torpedoed this whole endeavor, at least from an aesthetic standpoint. Mm -hmm. Uh, Will Smith actually points to the whole bullet time experimentation as the thing he was most insecure about and one of the reasons he decided to go and do wild wild west instead right yeah that and he also said he just didn't get it <laughs> i don't know why he would cop to that but uh, i mean it, the movie is such a classic now and has become <laughs> yeah. you know has been such a lasting sacred text mm-hmm. that i'm sure he gets asked about it all the time and probably just has to be humble about it yeah. but apparently will smith nicholas cage brad pitt val kilmer and eventually johnny depp passed or, no, I think when it comes to Johnny Depp, I think Johnny Depp was the Wachowski's first choice and the studio pushed for Keanu. Uh, wouldn't, I mean, I, I couldn't find any evidence that Johnny Depp was officially on board. Well, it was going to be Will Smith as Neo and Val Kilmer as Morpheus in, in that iteration, which would have been fascinating, of course. <laughs> yes, it would have. <laughs> Um, yeah, who else did I see? Oh, Samuel L. Jackson uh, also floated and Gary Oldman as well for Morpheus. Okay. So those are the only other casting what ifs that I found. So a lot of weird alternate history. So uh, I think it all worked out properly Yeah, this way. And they went off to Australia and, and shot this thing in 118 days and brought the whole Yen, uh, what's his name? Yen Woping mm-hmm. troop from Japan. It seems like it would pe- you know, the studio was relatively hands off, which I guess makes sense when you have a $63 million budget, which is pretty impressive considering the fact these guys are just coming off their first film but not a crazy number for 1999 right yeah and if you believe in this sci-fi action set piece i mean it is a little crazy when you think that's going to be rated r yeah but uh you know if you got joel silver backing you and he says this is a winner then uh you know might as well go for it 
obviously the time difference in Australia probably you know kept them kept them from being too meddlesome as well. Uh, according to the Wikipedia page, Yen Wuping let the body style type of each of the individual actors develop, and then worked with each actor's strength. He built on Keanu Reeves' diligence, Lawrence Fishburne's resilience. Hugo Weaving's precision, and Carrie Ann Moss's feminine grace. Yeah. So he tailored all of their various fighting styles around their mm-hmm. body types. Um, oh, we haven't talked about Hugo Weaving. Yeah, so Hugo Weaving is obviously a, a, an Australian legend, but at this point he's coming off of what? The Legend of Priscilla, yeah, Queen Qu- of the Desert? Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and a bunch of just random Australian stuff that no one had ever heard of. So this made him famous, and I'm sure was a big reason got cast in Lord of the Rings and it it was off from there so star making performance by him and one of the best American accents by a foreigner (laughs) ever in this role which he apparently somewhat based on the um, on the speaking like in the intonation of both of the Wachowski siblings oh really (laughs) so apparently I'm trying to think back to like list as he's like hearing their interviews or whatever but uh, apparently he based it on their on their voices that's funny especially Larry oh that's good yeah and then of course the aforementioned Joe, Joe Pantaleano brought back from bound and other than that it's a it's kind of a lot of no no names right like yeah. it's a, obviously a lot of australian actors mm-hmm. but that's that's pretty much the core yeah none of whom i would have called at the time big movie stars you know obviously keanu has been a big movie star at certain points of his career but at this point i really feel like he was back on his heels and honestly like a little bit of a punchline in certain parts of the industry you're right the the waves of his uh his nadirs multiple as they are i mean he does become a punchline at points and i think you know five years after the matrix he was back to being a punchline <laughs> yes exactly uh, which, <laughs> which is bizarre and then john wick brings him back I, I remember even after the movie came out you know i think a lot of people were saying this movie's great despite keanu despite his bad acting uh, right and and I think it was still well well known or well you know widely thought that he was just a, a shitty actor who had lucked into these roles. But the more we've lived with Keanu and watching this again, like he's 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 great in this role. Like he's absolutely perfect for it. And uh, there's a reason he keeps getting <laughs> work like this, and he keeps rising like the like the phoenix, right? Yeah, and I think that there's. I hope this isn't a controversial statement that I believe that there is a lot more to being an effective screen presence and a movie star than just technical acting acumen, right? Yes. Like he's he's bringing something to the screen that's very specific to him. When it comes to Keanu Reeves, it's all about the physicality, right? Absolutely. Like he bring his greatest performances or, or his greatest cinematic contributions always rely very much on his body as much as his ability to emote dramatically. Yeah, and, and a lot of that is just straight-up work ethic. I mean, this guy had neck surgery and was still training on off days and, and going nuts, and it, it does matter that you don't have to use stunt doubles. It does matter that you can keep these wide shots and keep them in frame, and, you know, John Wick's a perfect example of that. Like, that, the movie is all about the, the fight choreography, and the, the same goes here. And the gentleman who co-directed the first two John, or he, he co-directed the first John Wick, and I think he solo directed the last two, mm-hmm. um, was Keanu's stunt double yeah in this film at least right mm-hmm. but yeah I mean it's it's important to take into account how involved Keanu, how many of his own stunt how many stunts he does himself how involved he got with the Yen Woping team mm-hmm. and uh, yeah how he throws himself into that sort of thing and yeah his work ethic in almost a Tom Cruise kind of way right yeah yeah he just he just goes for it and uh, there's some ineffable likability to Keanu Reeves that can't be understated as well I mean such a mensch there, there's a reason people want to work with him and it, it, it comes through you want to de- you want to believe in this guy as the as the messiah I suppose <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Chad Stalinsky. Chad Stalinsky is the name of the director who was uh, Keanu's stunt double on this. All right, so on March 31st, 1999, nobody really knows what to make of it, but like you said, there is some, there's a rumbling, there's a groundswell, and in my recollection, by Monday morning, you know, by April 2nd or whatever it was, uh, not only did we have a hit on our hands, but something really special was happening, right? I mean, this thing became a phenomenon almost instantly. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a rare thing with these, you know, big budget action spectacles and I'm racking my brain to think of the last one or if this was the last one where it's a completely original concept, original film, there's no IP associated with it at all, you know, whether people are consciously aware or subconsciously aware, I think there is something to the fact that, oh, this came out of nowhere. I've got no connection to it. There's not a built-in fan base, but we all sort of agree 
on its uh, you know importance or, or or whatever. Like it sort of smacked us all in the face because we didn't know what to expect in in any regard. There there's something that's going to you know increase the water cooler talk about that, right? <laughs> there was lot there was plenty of that. I remember coming into school on Monday morning and it was all it was there was like hot hot locker talk, right? Yes. <laughs> that's all anybody wanted to talk about at the lockers uh, all day Monday was how incredible the matrix was or maybe just the circles I was running in. But everybody was sort of flabbergasted by it and I remember people getting very passionate and very defensive about it quickly in terms of like, "Oh, this is for me." You know, like this was made for me. Yeah. I want I want to be involved. This was pitched right at me. I mean, people got people just wrap their arms around this thing very quickly. And I think it had to do, a lot to do with what you're talking about in terms of people getting excited about something that's quote unquote new. Yeah. Something new IP, right? Mm-hmm. Now you can talk about all the different references the Wachowskis are drawing from, like all the Neuromancer stuff and all the ghosts, you know, your ghosts in the shell or your dark cities or your Akiras and stuff, right? Yeah. Like they're draw- Blade Runner even, they're, they're Strange Days. They're, they're pulling from every corner of the cyberpunk Bible, mm-hmm. as it were, and they're appropriating all of this stuff, but they're making it their own, and they're you know like building on John Baudrillard philosophy and all sorts of crazy references like that as well. But for all intents and purposes, they are building a new universe, and it shows up pretty damn fully formed. Yeah, which is why part of the reason I think they were able to go straight into the sequels because not only did they set this thing up perfectly for a franchise. But they've really laid all the proper track. The first half of this movie is pretty damn expositional by necessity. And that's one of the reasons I think you can really draw a direct line between this and Inception, right? Sure. Like, I think Nolan drew heavily from the Matrix in terms of the structure of Inception, where the first half of Inception really frustrates people and bores a lot of people because he has so much track to lay. And then the second half, it's just knocking the dominoes down, right? It's all playtime. Yeah. And that's kind of how the Matrix feels as well. I find the first half of the Matrix to be kind of a slog, and then I find the second half to be a hell of a lot of fun. But I think it's kind of by design, and it's kind of necessary that it exists that way it's interesting that you say that i mean i was i was perusing just some uh, a bunch of the old reviews from from 1999 of the film and it does seem to me that a lot of the middling to negative reviews said the exact opposite where, interesting where, where they loved the first half and thought the second half sort of devolved into action gobbledygook right <laughs> it shows you what my priorities are i guess right <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and you know I, I don't think it drags that much and i think it's interesting and you know i think the difference is i i'm not sure inception has tell me if i'm wrong you're more of an exception expert but like is there a ton of sort of subtext philosophical subtext happening in inception i mean in matrix there is that going on the the whole the world is not what you perceive it to be and that has obviously been co-opted by some seedier parts of the the internet but you have that feeling throughout that, that this is something bigger and saying something about the world society your inner mind whatever in inception is there do you find that depth to be there i do but i think it's far less metaphysical and it's yeah. much more kind of experiential sure. much more aesthetic um and in its own way much more consumed with temporality mm-hmm. and narrative construction and much more sort of like postmodernism. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not as deep as the matrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a, obviously a bigger fan of inception than I am of the matrix, but I do think that you don't have inception without the matrix. Yeah. And it, you can't really overstate how incredibly influential this film has been over the course of the last 20 years for better or for worse. Yeah. And I'll just go ahead and out myself here. I'm not a huge fan, and I've never been a huge fan. And at the time, I was a little bit taken aback by how much of a phenomenon this became. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that I was going around falsely presenting my feelings about the film. You know, I wasn't going around telling people that I loved it when I didn't. But I was probably nodding and smiling in conversations when people were effusive about it and keeping some of my thoughts to my, some of my nitpicks to myself more than I would have if it hadn't been such a resoundingly beloved text immediately. Over the last 20 years, my relationship with the film hasn't really changed that much. It's Mm -hmm. not a movie I revisit all that often, and that's part of the reason I was really excited about this series, and this was definitely a a necessary film Mm -hmm. to revisit. I've been very excited about talking about it, and I've actually watched it a couple times Mm -hmm. since we first announced this series to make sure that I really gave it the chance in retrospect. Well, you know, as a cinephile like yourself, Matty, it's... 
it's it's hard to fully fall in love with a movie when everyone else is doing it, right? Like you want to, you want to love the movies that are a little underappreciated, right? <laughs> is that normal? Yeah. yeah, there's something to that. I mean, but then again, I fell in love with Inception immediately, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that that movie was equally a phenomenon mm-hmm. and was nominated for Best Picture and was a huge hit. And I think there's been a little more backlash towards Inception than there has been towards The Matrix, although The Matrix ended up having two sequels that were not particularly well-liked or were at least controversial. We don't have to get too deep into talking about the sequels. No, no, I mean, but but, but I think they're important for context, especially in retrospect, right? I I, I think the the excitement around The Matrix as some sort of cinema classic has been tempered over the years, and a big part of that is uh, sort of the failures of the sequels. And, you know, I I appreciate Matrix Reloaded. I think uh, Revolutions is borderline unwatchable. Um, but, but I, I think the amount of like masterful depth that people ascribe to the first Matrix and like, oh my God, this is so profound and, and you know life changing or whatever. The sequels sort of shot that idea in the face, right? Like the, maybe the Wachowskis just found lightning in a bottle here, got lucky, and they weren't as in charge of the the narrative as, as maybe they seemed when this movie first came out. However, like the, the general response to it was a little odd. I mean. I wasn't an obsessive fan. I really liked it. I thought saw it two or three times in theater. Definitely family got the DVD. But I did have friends who weren't normally humongous movie buffs or whatever who really, really responded to it. And I'm not sure if that subset of people responded to the philosophical teachings of it, right? I think there's just a base level like this is fucking badass right the lobby scene is freaking badass like after a party let's go home and blare this on the surround sound uh because we've had too many coronas that night or something right (laughs) bump some rob zombie yeah i i think the people who were obsessed were maybe loved it for what the chaskies would think are the wrong reasons right The, the legacy of this movie i think is probably going to be more style than substance, right? Well, I think what you're getting at here is very important in kind of uh, honing in on exactly why this phenomenon is so singular, because you're basically talking about how many different ways there are to appreciate this film, right? Like, if you really want to approach it from a philosophical standpoint, uh, specious as some of the uh, philosophical musings might be, there's a lot to dig into and there's a lot to uncover there, and you can watch this film and then go off on some Jean Baudrillard jag, you know, down some Jean Baudrillard uh, rabbit hole or you can watch it just from like an aesthetic fetishistic Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of people did you know in terms of fetishizing all the weaponry and fetishizing the bodies in motion and the you know the cinema of attractions if you will um, and all the bullets and all the leather so you can do it that way or you can come at it from the cyberpunk side and just look at all you know the construction of the real world versus the matrix and the uh, Akira stuff mm-hmm. and the um, the dark city stuff the cyberpunk aesthetics of it all yeah or you can come at it from just more of a filmmaking standpoint and just look at the way that the narrative is structured and the hero's journey and all of kind of like the Joseph Campbell stuff and the one and the rejection of the call mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff that I know you're, you're very well educated in, yeah. in terms of just like the stepping stones in Neo's journey over the course of this thing. Mm-hmm. So I just think there's so many different ways to appreciate it that it makes complete sense that so many people did appreciate it because it felt very inclusive. Yes. It felt like let's, let's all, you know, let's all come and join hands and respect this movie and love it the way we want to love it. Because there's a little something for everybody, right? There's a lot to this. First off, I don't think this movie is that deep and that profound. Obviously, there's stuff to dig into. Um, and, and I think... kind of like existentialism for beginners or something. Yeah, yeah. And so the Wachowskis presented it in a, in a really approachable manner. And, you know, like I said, the first half is pretty expositional. But it's, it's not confusing. We understand what's going on pretty quickly. I, I just don't think... The subtext is, is so overwhelming that it deserves term papers to be written on it, which was a, like a, a thing for a long time, right? Like people, Certainly. People still is. Yeah, it still is, right? Which is fine. I mean, you, you can find some stuff in there because it paints pretty broad strokes of, like you said, ex- existentialism 101. I think in a deeper context, as we get further away from it, I think the, the most compelling thing to look at is just the fact that the Wachowskis have 
transition from from men to women how much we can ascribe this movie and this narrative to what they were feeling right at the time and i I think that's more interesting than any sort of deep philosophical text that were required reading for the cast we can talk about their careers more more broadly even and where they've gone from here because most people would suggest and they wouldn't necessarily be wrong at least from a financial standpoint that it's been downhill since the matrix for the wachowskis personally even though I think Bound is still their best movie, I've been fascinated by what they've done post-Matrix. Yeah. Like, I'm not the world's biggest Matrix fan. I certainly respect it, and I'm I'm not crazy about the sequels. I haven't watched either in years, but I'm a huge Speed Racer defender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love Speed Racer. I'm a huge Cloud Atlas defender. I think Cloud Atlas is their... You think it's their masterpiece? It's their best movie, yeah. I mean, an argument could be made. It's, it's their most ambitious film, for sure. Mm-hmm. And there was even... Parts of Sense8 and Jupiter Ascending <laughs> that I found interesting. So, I mean, um, uh, Jupiter Ascending. Re- God damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's a little indefensible. Um, but there's a lot about it. I mean, it's basically them trying to see if they can capture this again, right? It's them saying, we got this quote-unquote new thing that we're, that we're attempting. We're going to try and build this new universe. And people didn't bite the way they Jupiter did Ascending is the Matrix gone wrong, basically. It's their second <laughs> attempt, and it was not successful on a number of levels. Fair. But I think I'll take Jupiter Ascending and... Uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets over Thor the Dark World or Captain Marvel any day of the week just just by nature of the uh, ambitiousness of it all, right? Yeah, and just the newness of the it. The weirdness. Like, it's hard because Jupiter Ascending lost money and you know it's such such a big crapshoot to have original IP out there with a the big budget, but uh, God damn it, when it hits, it, something like The Matrix happens. Yeah, but it hit, it happens pretty rarely, un- uh, unfortunately, and uh, I think that's why The Matrix was so refreshing mm-hmm. to see something like that hit the way that it did. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, at the time, I, I think I was a little more sort of impressed with the uh, audacity of it all. And I was maybe a little too young and naive to hone in on all the the existentialism, the Marxism, feminism, Buddhism, nihilism, all the isms. Yeah. And uh, like you said, even even, for, even all that stuff is a little bit entry level. Mm-hmm. I rewatching it a couple times in the last three weeks or so. My thoughts about the film have remained pretty consistent in that I'm a little bored with the first half, even though I think that the storytelling and the world building is pretty clean. I just don't really care about Keanu Reeves hanging off of buildings, and I don't really care that much about Lawrence Fishburne and his um, mirrored glasses, and all, just all kind of like the affectations of it all. Yeah. And uh, I find a lot of kind of the gross viscerality of it to be a little bit off-putting. Like, I'm kind of grossed out. It, it's just, it's a very gooey, it's a very slippery first half, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of just a lot of goo, goo for vis- sure. Yeah, there's a lot of just goo and viscera and you know babies with tubes down their throats. There's just a lot of <laughs> things that I kind of gross me out. And I understand it's necessary world building and it's fine and the special effects are of course still very impressive. But I'm much more into like Joe Pantaliano as a turncoat and I'm much more into uh you know Carrie Ann Moss piloting a helicopter and then uh, you know Keanu Reeves wrapping his his arm around the tow line and her swinging into the building and then of course the bullet time stuff and then just the last 20 minutes or so just about as perfect as it gets for an action film in terms of ratcheting up the tension and in terms of execution right yes like from him fighting hugo weaving in the subway and then him being chased by all the the agents through sydney and getting back up into the hotel where the whole thing started you know where the very first scene is is Trinity in that hotel, heart of the city or whatever. And then the fact that he has to go back to the same room at the end is a really nice book ending. And then him getting killed and then coming back to life and then stopping the bullets and seeing the matrix. It's, it doesn't get much better than that. I mean, that last, that scene where he finally sees it, that it gives me chills just talking about it. You know, like it's pretty much perfectly executed. Yeah. And, and I think you can't understate how important that is for this movie becoming a phenomenon and the rewatchability of it. Like when movies really stick the landing like this, it makes yes. it you know you, you just leave the theater on a high, right? And, and yes. that's what we all did collectively at the time. Um, and I, I tend to agree with you. I, I think the special effects hold up really well. There's, it, it's pretty beautifully shot. Uh, throughout, yeah, the great Bill Pope, right? Like I said, I, I I love the last twenty thirty minutes. I love any time Hugo Weaving talks. He has that great great <laughs> monologue about human sure. viruses. Basically, once they step into the lobby till the end of the film, it's uh, it's nonstop just action film excellence. I'm I'm kind of with you. Like this is not a movie I I'm itching to revisit all the time, and I hadn't seen it in you know since we watched it together you know three four weeks ago. Uh, I hadn't seen it probably. Uh, what do we say like 10 years it had been a long time 
Um, I, I Front th- to back, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think we we all probably got matrixed out in the, yeah. in the early 2000s, and especially with the, the bad taste the sequels left in our mouths. So this is probably the right time to give it another go. And it, it, it does hold up, which is somewhat surprising for you know late 90s CGI and action stuff. I, I'm impressed. I, I totally understand why it was the hit that it is and why it's still within the zeitgeist every now and then. I do sort of wonder how many Matrix obsessives there are left. And I, I wonder if the, the new generation of college students are, are putting it on at 1 a.m., <laughs> oh, yeah. It's important to point out that it came out in 1999, of course, right as the DVD, sort of like the DVD revolution was about to happen. This movie had to make a billion dollars in DVD sales, you'd think. I-, I wouldn't be surprised if this was one of the 10 best-selling DVDs of all time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? I mean, it came out at just the perfect time, you know, it, it, and it was going to capitalize on all these great special features and commentary tracks, things of that nature. And then, yeah, like you said, became a perennial just running on a loop in any given dorm room from 2000 to you know 2005 i'm sure at least Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean this was just something that everybody kind of agreed on that was just a crowd pleaser of the highest order Mm -hmm. and just sort of became something of an instant genre classic yeah i would say so what's the legacy of this film then considering that less than a month after this comes out these two guys put on trench coats and shoot up their high school immediately the eyes of the world turn towards movies and video games and this film kind of became a bit of a um, whipping boy for a while, right? Like it was hard to not see the the aesthetic signifiers between the Matrix and the Columbine boys, right? It's it's true. Uh, you know, this movie's not to blame for Columbine. I think we can say that once and for all, obviously. You know, part of it, like I said, is that this movie, the, the sort of action scenes, they're bloodless. They feel like a video game. And so there is an excess of violence in that way, but it... Uh, obviously, it's it, it serves the narrative right. It's never it, within within the vacuum within the movie. It's never excessive. Obviously, it never bought the whole Columbine thing. Although it is unfortunate that that is part of the legacy. Although over time, people aren't blaming Matrix anymore. People aren't looking back as like a, a, this as a turning point in any way. I mean, shoot 'em up action movies have been around forever now so it's 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 not it's not like the the first time this became a became a thing and it's not like it inspired all sorts of similar action movies so i don't know i mean do you feel like that there's still like a lingering thought that this movie is associated with columbine well i I only bring it up because i'm i'd be interested to talk about how maybe people feel about it today whether people who maybe weren't even alive at the time you know who, who are less than younger than 20 but have obviously seen the film, how they feel about it. If they look at it as very quaint, if they look at it as very silly, especially, you know, the fashion choices or whatever, if they really think of this, you know, this whole kind of like Rob Zombie, Rage Against the Machine, you know, Rammstein, Mm -hmm. whatever you call it, you know, death metal, (laughs) 90s musical movement, if they feel that's all very silly and very dated. And, And if this film's legacy has been tainted by the whole uh, appropriation of the red pill idea, right? Which I don't know much about it, but I do remember reading that factions of the alt-right had sort of adopted the idea of, uh, like, the philosophical idea of the red pill. Yeah, it's the red pill is basically, you know, if you're a member of the red pill, you you see the world as it is, which is, for how I understand that women are basically evil and it's society's fault that you're not getting laid. Um, which is okay. So there's an incel uh, sort there's of an uh, incel, but property to it. It's it's pretty ironic that that's the group of people who are uh, associating the. I mean, because of just who the Wachowskis are, it's pretty ridiculous. It's fascinating. Yes, it's it's all fascinating, and I, obviously we would love to hear their thoughts. I don't know, although I'm sure they're probably fatigued and um, <laughs> just completely worn out having to answer these kinds of questions, and they deserve to live live their own lives and make other films and not have to worry about all this crap mm-hmm. but it's just interesting that that's part it's just part of the film's legacy unfortunately that it's been so popular and is readable in so many different directions you know people can point to it as having been the inspiration for horrible events like columbine and people can pick and choose the parts of it they want to use for their own you know misguided political movements yeah and it really takes something as ubiquitous as this to become the sort of thing that people choose to appropriate uh, aspects of. Yeah, I mean, just the base level idea of you take this pill and then you see the world for what it truly is can be you know, co-opted by any group who has a sort of 
off-kilter idea about the, what the world should be or, or who's being uh, trod upon by society or whatever, right? So, like, it's, like I said, this movie has some basic philosophical tenets to it that can be, it's kind of a Rorschach test for whatever you want to believe, I guess. And it's honestly, it, that isn't even necessarily stuff that Wachowski's, I mean, that's not their invention. This stuff goes back yeah. to, you know, Lewis, Lewis Carroll, right? Mm-hmm. So in their own way, they're actually co-opting a lot of pre-existing ideas and theories and material anyway. Yeah. And they're putting it together in a very interesting digestible package. Uh, but the ambition of it all is still pretty, impressive and admirable yeah i mean so here's an example of exactly what we're talking about and that you can watch this movie and then come up with whatever ridiculous conclusion you want this is an op-ed written on the bbc this, okay. this came out 12 hours ago <laughs> wow the matrix's male power fantasy has dated poorly ahead of its time when it was released 20 years ago the matrix is a monument to generation x self-pity that is out of step with today. Maybe, sure. Again, you can read into this however you want to read into it. There's a lot to to take from it. It's a big tapestry, I suppose. But I, I guarantee that's not what the Wachowskis <laughs> were going after when they wrote and directed this film. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we'll continue to talk. Well, this topic will continue coming up, and it'll probably finally really crystallize when we talk about Fight Club, yeah. which I think is kind of like the ultimate. Gen X on Wii film. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's important to point out that the Wachowskis, I believe, are both of the age that they would be considered Gen Xers and were probably in their, what, early 30s when they made this film? Yeah. Maybe mid-30s? That sounds right. Um, so, yeah, they're coming at it from a Gen X standpoint, and we've we talked about this. We talked about Office Space. When it comes to Gen X, it's all about deciding whether or not to sell out and are you going to work for the man and are you going to keep your flannel and your ripped jeans or are you going to put on a tie, right? Yeah. And so this, you know, the beginning of this movie is Keanu working for the man in a cubicle with a tie that doesn't fit very well and a cell phone. And by the end of the movie, he's got his leather and uh, sunglasses and <laughs> uh, Doc Martens on, right? Yeah. So he has he has rejected the man in favor of um, going to a Ramstein party. <laughs> <laughs> so that is there's definitely something there in terms of the you know gen x you know identity crisis sure i suppose right and this this movie is all about sort of declaring your identity you know you you see yourself differently than the world sees you yes and you want to become the best version of yourself despite how the world pigeonholes you or puts you in a box yeah it's about taking agency over your existence as opposed to being a, a cog in the machine right and that's all that's all good that's all good stuff that's all joseph campbell stuff anyway mm-hmm. when he finally does you know see the titular matrix it, it just it becomes such a incredibly useful metaphor mm-hmm. right like i can't tell you how many hackneyed uh, <laughs> cookie cutter essays and articles i've written over the years that have had to rely on uh, the idea of finally seeing the matrix or seeing the ones and zeros as a way of explicating you know finally like understanding something on a fundamental level right yeah like finally truly truly seeing the inside of something is seeing the matrix so and that is just such an elegant metaphor and such a beautiful climax and and that as a result, the next two films just can't really measure up to that. You know, like once you've seen The Matrix, where do we have to go from here? There's a lot of interesting things happening in those second two films, and there's a lot of ambition, and there's some fascinating sequences, and they gave it their best shot, mm-hmm. and they really tried. And they, you know, they didn't attempt to remake the first film. They attempted to try and push it further. And uh, in that regard, I'm, I'm impressed with their ambition, but I really feel there's nowhere to go after you've seen the ones and zeros. Yeah. And for me that's that's you know that's obviously the high point of the whole series. Do do you think we this movie would be held in much higher esteem if the there'd never been any sequels to it? I I think so. I think unfortunately, you know, well, maybe fortunately, for better or for worse, <laughs> uh bad sequels or bad prequels even yeah. will uh, certain certainly um complicate the legacy of any given ip yeah so how, how can it not are there good things to glean from the matrix sequels or you know did they make people happy mm-hmm. i don't the know the car chase is pretty cool <laughs> well that's the thing is that we're just sort of <laughs> grasping at straws to like the arc the architect's pretty cool i like the architect apparently uh, a role that was originally offered to uh, sean connor oh that would have been fun <laughs> so but apparently he didn't get that the same way uh, he um <laughs> 
reportedly didn't understand Gandalf either when he turned down that role. <laughs> yeah, and we're better for it. So The film went on to make $464 million on a $63 million budget. Yeah. I haven't even bothered putting that into the... Um, the inflation calculator? The inflation calculator, but uh, it's, it's still a pretty enormous number. I can't find anything on what the Wachowskis' next project is uh they're probably still reeling from jupiter ascending they don't have to do anything but it'll be interesting to see if if hollywood anywhere gives them any money to do anything big ever again because they haven't risen to the matrix heights uh you know since over the last basically 20 years no but i think the biggest compliment you can give the matrix in in terms of its sort of like cultural significance is that i think the wachowski's will never not be able to find money to make movies. Yeah, probably. Does that make sense? Like, I think the Wachowskis will always work if they want to work. Now, they may have to, they may have, their budgets may need to be a little more modest. They may need to work, you know, they might need to do the Sense8 thing and work with Netflix. They, They may not necessarily ever be able to work on the level of the Matrix or Speed Racer, Jupiter Ascending again. But I don't think the, I think the Wachowskis will always be able to create if they want to, based on the fact that the Matrix is an enduring classic. As long as there are people who are old enough to remember how the Matrix made them feel Mm -hmm. the first time they saw it, I think people are always going to be willing to pick up the phone when the Wachowskis call. Yeah, and it's it's a damn shame Cloud Atlas sort of got a stink on it from the very beginning for for whatever reason just too complex too weird but i I think that movie will continue to rise in esteem the further we get away from it will it be known as some misunderstood classic i hope so but it may not get to those heights but but i i do see occasionally people being like i think we all missed the boat here on cloud atlas and hopefully that continues I agree. And I think we're going through a time of uh, reevaluation of Speed Racer, which I know is just a movie that I continue to <laughs> bang the drum for, but I don't think I'm alone in that. And for people who love The Matrix or maybe watched it for the first time because they're prepping for this conversation, in which case, thanks for doing that. Mm-hmm. We're so happy to have you with us. For people who love The Matrix and haven't seen Cloud Atlas or Speed Racer because of the quote-unquote stink on either of those two films, please seek them out because they are both phenomenal films. And really interesting for completely different reasons and bound as well which again i still think is their is their most sophisticated film yeah probably the film of theirs that i revisit the most and just still one of the all-time great uh, cinematic debuts i think that about wraps it up man any uh, final thoughts uh no i was really looking forward to this one and it's still just a fascinating cultural artifact 20 years on uh it, it seems like the thing it seems like there's just still a lot to talk about when it comes to this movie and uh, it still rewards uh, rewatch. All right, everyone. This has been Retro Spectating 1999, The Matrix. Uh, we'll be back for more from this series in the coming months. Uh, but in the meantime, if you haven't subscribed, please do. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Say goodbye, man. Goodbye. Goodbye.